This is Power Lunch, an hour to talk lightning hockey, the NHL, and how you're coping with the coronavirus, exclusively on Lightning Power Play via the iHeartRadio app. Center point, Hedman, right to Kucherov. Score! Patrick Kucherov! Hope you had a great weekend. Mine was okay. Problem was all this rain. See, when you have kids, especially under the age of five, and it rains, and you can't do a heck of a lot to begin with, although I think more places are starting to open up, so you're starting to see some activities rolling. That's good, believe me, if you have kids and, and you want to get them occupied. But when it rains like this on the weekends, there's just not much you can do with the little ones outside of, you know, playing some games, educating them, and then, of course, watching Ladybug, which has been the newest show in the Linelli household. I don't know if I want to begin to, to break it down with you. Steve, Ladybug. have you... Ladybug. I, I do not know this show. Yes. It's a... Um, so it's based in France, and it's basically two teenagers. It's a cartoon. It's a series. And they're superheroes. You know, during the day, they're Mm -hmm. normal kids. And then when there's evil that strikes, they turn into their character. Okay. And, um, you know, my daughter loves it. And, of course, we watch it multiple times. And anytime I get a chance to flick the channel on and off, I do that, Steve, because that, that just drives me crazy. But, I mean, what do you do when it's raining? I mean, you have you have two boys as well. You know? uh, there's a lot of um, a lot of Xbox, a lot of wrestling, yeah. a lot of throwing the football back and forth in the house. We have a soft football we throw in our yes playroom. Area, now I've been so. to your house before. It's big. You, know, you have a pool too. Yes, the pool right? helps. I mean, yesterday when it, Saturday when it was pouring down rain all day, we weren't in there. But Sunday, we can were. your kids swim? Yes. Well, the, the youngest still wears floaties, but he's can okay. swim, jump they, in the did pool. Did your do oldest everything. take lessons? Um, he has taken a few, but for the most part, he kind of learned it on his own. So. Oh, okay. Good. He, he was kind of a late bloomer on it. He's kind of one who sits back yeah. and watches everything and then eventually right. decides, okay, I'm going to do it. And he's been watching for so long, he figures it out. Yeah. So He makes fun of the people that can't swim, and then he figures out how to swim on his own. See, we're taking swimming lessons right now mm-hmm. in our community pool. And, you know, it's, I mean, we have an eight-month-old. I mean, you know, just getting her in the water, you know, she's splashing and, and loving it. Gianna doesn't know how to swim right now, so that yep. it's like Monday through Thursday. That's a big deal. So it you know gets her in the water, and mm-hmm. you know hopefully in about a month when we go to Pennsylvania for our our trip, my uh, in laws have a swimming pool. Hopefully by then she'll be able to to jump around. But that's uh, the pool is huge, Steve, because as we know it saps a lot of energy. That's the key. Kids. That is the key. It's huge, right? Yes, they are worn out after a day there. Yes, they are. So. Um, that's basically what we did this weekend. You know, we, we tried to, to be good parents and, and not sit in front of the TV the whole time, but sometimes life takes you in those different directions. And We've been doing all kinds of home improvement stuff throughout this whole process. That's so. the time to do it. We've done a lot of painting, a lot of fixing yeah. little things here and there, and I'm changing out light switches and things like that. And good for you. Yeah. Good for you. That's the time to do it. Yeah, you know, it's, you're, you're kind of stuck with kids and can't really yeah. do much, and so... Uh, spending a lot of time doing that. So we painted our master bedroom this weekend. So, Oh, that's a chore. Always looks great, though, when it's done. Yes. yes. You know, and you can, you can take a step back and admire your work. Plus, you also save some money by doing it yourself. That's how mm-hmm. I look at it. And that's always fun. So, 
All right, well, that's good stuff. But we also had a chance to listen to Game 7 um, yesterday on Lightning Power Play. Of course, the 16th anniversary. It was the 16th anniversary, Downing the Flames. It's a big deal. Now, obviously, I wasn't in Tampa for that moment, but I do remember it happening. And, you know, we even got some tweets yesterday. Bob, of course, who uh, a loyal listener, and we always What's the record? He asked the... <laughs> Second seed in the Eastern Conference. Remember, Steve, this, okay. is, yes. this is where well, we are. That's well, it. They're going to reseed, though, right. so we're not sure. I mean, that's, you're right. that's where they stand listen, at this point. Any, it's a running joke here. Anytime you're a bit curious as to where Tampa Bay is in the standings. By the way, you need to follow Bob on Twitter. Bob, I'm giving you huge props here. At ATS underscore Tampa. Um, just look at uh, his, his main line there, and it'll say, Bob, second seed Eastern Conference. And that always helps me because, you know, for whatever reason, if I have a brain cramp, uh, I know the record. I just look at Bob's. But, you know, he goes... Um, do you prefer the tight checking game um, more than the physical play from 04? Not saying fighting, meaning clean, hard hitting without calls for roughing. Personally, that was quite exciting about uh, without referee calls. And, you know, we've had this conversation before about what do you prefer. The problem is, Bob, the NHL officiating is one that it's so different than the regular season, probably more so than in any other league. Steve, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but even in the NFL, like I feel they're pretty good about calling what's a penalty for the most part in the playoffs. Except for pass interference would. on the last play of the game. But, right. But and look, nobody yeah. Yeah, <laughs> nobody knows what pass interference is anymore. Yeah. But you're right. Yes, there are some egregious calls that have happened in the playoffs, and, and that is why yeah. they've had to change certain They'll rules. They'll swallow the but whistle I, in the NBA a little bit, but I think the NHL changes more than any. It's just, you know, it, it, it boggles my mind. And look, I understand not wanting to be the person that decides the outcome of a game with a call, particularly if it's against a team who's down late and then they're shorthanded. We know how hard it is to score in the playoffs to begin with. Now you factor in you're shorthanded and you're down by one. It's, it's, a, it's a tough time. But the reality is when you don't call something, you are affecting the outcome of the game. And I'm wondering if you pulled players aside today and privately didn't go on the record, but privately asked them, do you kind of like the officials swallowing the whistle in the playoffs? I wouldn't be surprised if you had some more than the majority of players say, you know what? I don't mind it. Let the players dictate who's going to win and lose. But, you know, especially Steve, if you're a team that's very skilled like the lightning and teams take advantage of you in the playoffs and they rough you up, but they're holding and they're clutching and they're grabbing that's part of your game is getting power play opportunities. If that goes away in the playoffs, that directly affects your team. Well, and, and look, people will say, you know, oh, you can't make a call to affect the outcome of a game. Well, not making a call affects the outcome of a game, exactly. too. Exactly. And uh, to me, especially, Bob, if I'm a skilled team like the Lightning and I see the officiating being called the way it is and it's not favoring a team like Tampa Bay, I would be very, very upset and ticked off because you're taking a part of the game away that works for me. Now, you, the flip side of that is you could say Tampa's speed and skill puts some other teams in uncomfortable positions that would lead them to taking obvious penalties, and I would agree with you. But what I'm telling you is if you're going to swallow that whistle in the playoffs, it really does make things a little even. Uh, more even, I should say, 
uh, with teams who are inferior skill-wise to the Tampa Bay Lightning. So it is interesting. I love the speed and skill of the game. I understand tight checking is is what the playoffs are all about, and every shift matters. And I, there's something to be said for that. But I do think what makes hockey a beautiful game is the skill and the speed. And I'd like to see a bit more in the playoffs. And I think if the officiating was a bit better, we probably would see that. But I mean, it isn't, fun. It, isn't it all season long they talk about, you know, we want more scoring in games, we want more excitement, we want more action. Yeah. We get to the playoffs and we want two-to-one games. Right. I, I've never understood that. I've never understood why. What's the point of the 82-game schedule if you're just going to completely play a different game in the playoffs? Well, and that's what I said. I, and maybe our audience out there can can weigh in at Bolts Radio or at Greg Linelli. Is there another sport that changes the way they call a game more so than the NHL from regular season to postseason. You know, baseball, look, a strike is a strike for the most part. A bang-bang play at first base, first base mm-hmm. they have replay they can go to. Most of the times, though, those guys get it right. I, th- I think baseball gets better. In its, yeah. For the simple fact, the biggest thing in baseball is the strike zone. And right. when you get to the playoffs, you've got the best guys remaining. You've weeded out yeah. the 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 less than average of ref or umpires for the, you know, for the playoffs. So you're getting the right. best ones traditionally who have the best strike zones, the most consistent callers of strikes and balls. So in baseball, you almost get a better product because of that. I mean, the, the bang, well, bang, you theoretically should are, be getting the best crews in any sport. Right, right. Right. I mean, once you get to the Super Bowl, that's the best of the best, right? Steve in well, hockey, it should be the same way. Well, I think it is. I just think they right. decide that yeah, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure that was this foul, so I'm not going to call it. Where in the regular season, they would have called it. And I, yes. I think you change the game when you decide, when you yeah. consciously or unconsciously decide to not make the same calls you made for 82 games all season. And I think there's something to be said for that, too, in basketball. I think you brought it up, and I think it's a good one in the playoffs, particularly if it's a star player with a ball in his hand. I would think more times than not, if there's some sort of contact or infraction, there's going to be a call. I think NBA officials, NBA refs are less hesitant to call a foul late in a game as opposed to an NHL ref late in the game that could change the complexion of how things develop. But I, I just think it's so bizarre. I mean, I understand I, we've grown up with hockey, so we under, we've seen it, so we're in some ways used to it. But I, I do think it's so bizarre that hockey is so drastically different when it comes to officiating that I'm not sure there's another sports league that comes close. I, I really don't. And, you know, if you were watching or listening to the the 04 Stanley Cup Finals and then you watched maybe something today, you know, maybe things are drastically different with, with how things were played back then before the lockout. But I think you could still make a case the teams like the clutching and the grabbing. And if the officials started to call penalties a bit more in the playoffs, the other thing, too, is do it earlier, and I, I think people w- would be on board with, with how things are being officiated. I think as you get deeper into the playoffs, the whistle tends to go away a bit more, and I think that's what's frustrating. But you had a chance to listen to that on Lightning Power Play. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, it's a special moment here in the city, no doubt about it. Anytime you win a Stanley Cup or a championship of any sort. It's only one of two championships in Tampa Bay. So. It's, a great, it, it's a great point, and... You know, I wanted to ask the question today before we got into the other topic is that what quantifies a great 
organization or a really good organization in your eyes as a fan base? Because, you know, as we sit here and we look at the Tampa Bay Lightning organization, they certainly have had their ups and downs. But winning that Stanley Cup back in 04 and then missing the playoffs, you know, during that run 07, 08 to, you know, 2009 to 2010 where they weren't really competitive. And that's when they had a lot of issues with ownership. They had the Barry Melrose debacle. And, you know, those, those are things that can set a franchise back considerably. But I'm wondering, when you take a look at the Lightning, I think it's fair to say that they're one of the best organizations in all of hockey, not only off the ice, obviously, but on the ice. And that's not easy to do because there are a lot of teams out there. You know, you take a look at the Ottawa Senators, at the Montreal Canadiens, and these are Canadian teams that the expectations are pretty high, that outside of a couple of moments recently, especially for Ottawa... Uh, they've kind of been a laughing stock a bit. They haven't been able to field competitive teams or playoff teams. And I'm wondering, in, in Lightning fans' eyes, can you be considered, you know, still a great franchise when, let's say, this core group of players hasn't won a Stanley Cup? And I think you can. And I think you can, Steve, mainly because in a salary cap era, just because you're a really talented team does not mean and does not guarantee you're going to win a Stanley Cup. Whereas maybe before the cap era, when teams could spend the limit, you know, a team like Colorado or Denver, you know, those teams not only had only had not only had really talented teams, but they also spent a lot of money. So in some ways, you were expected to to bring home some Stanley Cups. I do think with the salary cap, whatever edge you may have talent-wise going into that season on some other teams. It's not as big as in years past before the salary cap. And I'm wondering if you get a little bit more of a pass if you're a team that just hasn't been able to break through winning a cup in today's game because of the salary cap. I think this year will make a, a big uh, – you'll have that answer after this season or into yeah. next season. And, and I think the reason is, is you know, last year what they, they set the record and, and had 128 points and, of course, were knocked out in the first round. They're back this year. They're the second seed in the East at this point, playing really well. Had you know they started they struggled a little bit early, but really got it together and, and are playing well. But how they handle the salary cap issues they're going to have after this season is going to be a big part of that. Too, yeah, is that we all know that there's a salary cap crunch coming with this team. They've been able because they've had they've done so well drafting, particularly in the lower rounds of the draft, and finding really 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 good players that have come up through the system based on that they've been able to hold this core group together with a lot of these young guys helping out but now they're going to get into a salary cap crunch for the next season or two and so how they manage that will be a big part of it now they win the cup this year that kind of answers all that too but you know how long can they keep this core group together going in a salary cap era and continuing to play at that high level that they are Steve, I'm wondering if you feel this way, um, because I was thinking about this the other day, and, and it goes to your point about really being judged at the end of the year because of some of the moves and hard moves, hard decisions they're going to have to make. But did you get the sense for the first time in a while the moves that Julian Breezewa made at the trade deadline actually came under some scrutiny, more so than what we've seen from Steve Eisman and Julian Breezewa early on? In other words, what they gave up 
to get the players they got at the deadline. Mm -hmm. I felt like there were more people out there who questioned it rather than applauded it. And I'm wondering if those people are really not sold on what's going to happen in the offseason, they're going to make the right decision. Well, look, he had to pay a price. But as we know, when you're trading for anyone who's not a rental and on a reasonable contract, which both Barclay Goodrow and Blake Coleman were, they both are signed through next season. It's cost you more to do those moves. It, it, rentals are cheaper. Anybody with term costs more because you're getting more control of them. So you were going to have to pay a hefty price. Now, what those moves told me was that Breezebois and the organization, that this team's ready to win the cup now, and we're, gonna, we're all in. We'll figure out three years from now, three years from now. We're all in. Plus, we got guys that next year are going to help us because – if when we do have to make a move on one of the bigger paid guys, we're probably going to have to get rid of, if not more than one. We've got good guys on cheap contracts still for another year that are going to f- help fill those holes. Because what I really think it says, too, is if you look at the Lightning prospect pool, they've got good prospects, but they don't have the – there's no one right now you're calling that Braden Point, mm-hmm. that Tony Sorelli. You know, you don't have th- those type guys – you know, where you're going, you know, this is going to be the next superstar. You've got guys that are going to play in the NHL and are going to, are going to be good NHL players, and, and they can still take that in the next step. But I don't, I don't know if they really believe they have those guys that are filling top six roles right now. Do you need that, though, if Point is still 22, 23, Cooch is 26? Well, but you, but you probably don't need the stars yet at that position, but you definitely need impact players. You, yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah, you don't necessarily need them to fill a top six role, but the top six potential. And maybe they don't, maybe they don't see that there. And so they've, you know, have got these, I mean, you know, presumably one or two big contracts have to be moved out this offseason. And depending on what the shutdown and everything else, who, you know, if the salary cap becomes a lot less, it, it, it could be even more than that that they're going to have to worry about. Yeah. Um, you know, because they, they've got a crunch right now for the next, what, season or two. And then it gets a little better after that as far as contracts and that. But They do. They do. I felt like, and for the, for the record, all on board with what Julian Breezewell did at the trade deadline. Big advocate of what he did. I didn't care what the price was. If those were his guys that he wanted to get, if he had to give up a first-round pick and some prospects, look, as you and I have discussed along with Eric when he was here doing the show, prospects are assets. They're there to bring in other assets or they're to be used on your roster whenever they're ready to go and, and fully developed. But I had no problem mm-hmm. getting Blake Holman and Barkley Goodrow and Zach Bogosian and then what you did in the offseason uh, before with getting guys like Kevin Shattenkirk and Pat Maroon, whatever price you had to pay financially or giving up any assets to get those guys. That told me, to your point, that they're mm-hmm. ready to win and win now. I think for the first time in a while... I heard more Lightning fans groan about the moves than applaud them. And I'm just curious their mindset heading into this offseason. Are they less patient with Julian Breezewa? Or maybe the better word is, are you less confident in Julian Breezewa than you were with Steve Eisman? And I think in some ways that may be unfair to Breezewa, who hasn't been on the job that long, but I certainly think has made an impact. They win a championship, Julian Breezewa will be given full props for what mm-hmm. he accomplished because... Not only did he stay the course with his core group of players, Steve, but he went out and added some pieces that had some terms still, but he felt were the missing pieces mm-hmm. to a team that maybe was, I don't want to say soft, but needed a little bit more grit. 
I think the criticism, look, you're fair to criticize Julian in these moves. And and maybe part of this was he didn't make any moves last season, so he wanted to to go all in this year. But I, I think the bigger part of the criticism may come from Blake Coleman and Barclay Goodrow weren't household names. Yeah. You know, when Eiserman put off the deal for McDonough and JT Miller, our you know, our fan base knew those names, Ryan McDonough particularly. You know, Barclay Goodrow and Blake Coleman aren't coming in here to take a top six role. Now, I think, you know, I think Coleman can play a top six, but that's not what his role on this team right. is right now. And Goodrow is to be your center in your fourth line or to, you know, a more physical presence down in the third or fourth line. So I, I think part of it is, is who are these guys? You know, they weren't known name. It wasn't like the big splash where you're going, you've got this superstar. You traded for, you know, this superstar whose contract was coming up and the team wanted to get rid of them. That's not what they did. They, they traded for pieces that they feel fit their system, fit their team, fit exactly the holes they had going in. And, and, but if Lightning fans aren't as familiar with those names, then the criticism goes, you paid what for that? You paid how much? Even though if you talk to well, people inside hockey, they yeah. all, a lot of people think those were good moves. Maybe they paid a little too much. But you weren't getting rental, so you are going to pay a high price. Yeah, and I think especially, too, Barkley Goodrow, when they hear the national media talk about him, he's a fourth-liner, can't believe he gave up You know what you gave up to get him, and I think that also plays into it. But uh, I'm curious what our audience thinks. Uh, at Greg Linelli, at Bolts Radio, way in there. When it comes to the lighting organization in general, do you feel like it's still a great organization, even though this core group of players hasn't won a Stanley Cup just yet? And do you feel like there's maybe a little bit more criticism thrown towards Julian Breezewalk compared to what we saw with Steve Eisman? In some ways, it's understandable. In some ways, you still have to give the guy, I think, a few more moves before we can completely start critiquing him left and right. Uh, Dan Rosen, senior writer for NHL.com, will be joining us in the next segment. We're going to ask him about uh, Phase 2 with the NHL and uh, some of the other things that are going on around the league. Uh, The last thing I want to get to before we go to... Dan, and it was a question that um, I was thinking about last night, and one that's kind of interesting from the standpoint that we know Victor Hedman, outside of Andre Vasilevsky, might be the team's most valuable player. I mean, you, you can make a strong case with Kucherov and Point and, and Stamkos, certainly. Hedman, I, I think, is when you take a look at every player the Lightning has on this roster that's considered elite. I think I can make a strong case that Victor Hedman at his position is more elite than Kucherov or Stamkos at their positions. I think that's fair. At least that's my opinion. I think Vasilevsky is the one guy that can compare his eliteness at his position with Victor Hedman. I think Vasilevsky, you've heard me say this before, I think Vasilevsky is the best goaltender in the game. Mm-hmm. If he's not the best goaltender in the game. He's certainly in the top two or three. I, I think you can make a strong case Victor Hedman is in the top three to four defenseman in the game. You could make Probably that argument. He's the, the best. To, you can make that argument. You can make that case. Um, I, I don't know if I'd make that case. I, I will make that case stronger for Vassy than I would Hedman. Mm-hmm. But if you made the case for Hedman, Steve, I, I probably wouldn't disagree with a, a ton of what you're saying. Bottom line is, I think Hedman is the one guy that comes close or closer to Vasilevsky at his position being the best in his game. For sure. But I... I I wanted to ask the question, who is the second most valuable defenseman on this team? Because I think when you actually stop and think about it, I think there's probably four guys you could throw your way. 
mean, you could talk about Eric Chernak, who's a physical presence that Tampa Bay desperately needs and doesn't have a ton of. Right there, he becomes valuable. Ryan McDonough, I can make the argument last year, might have been their best defensive defenseman. Mm -hmm. His smooth skating, we understand, plays in all key situations. It's hard not to have Ryan McDonough as your second best and most valuable defenseman when we start talking about Tampa Bay's back end. Then you have Kevin Shattenkirk. Kevin Shattenkirk comes in and really stabilizes this team from top to bottom. We can talk about Jan Ruta and what he's done playing with Victor Hedman, but Kevin Shattenkirk has gotten back to being very close to an elite defenseman, at least offensively. And I'm not sure that's something many Lightning fans anticipated when he signed in the offseason. Kudos to the Lightning and their staff for getting a guy like that at a discounted rate. And kudos to Shattenkirk for, I don't want to say rededicating himself to becoming an elite offensive defenseman, but getting back to where he needed to be. But the last guy that I'm going to give you might be, in my opinion, the second most valuable defenseman on this team right now, and that would be Mikhail Sergachev. Did anybody anticipate Sergachev taking the steps this year before the season started? Sergachev, the minute, Steve, he started to be a physical defenseman, immediately, I think, improved his game exponentially. And his offensive game got better. I think it, you can make a case he became more confident. But I think the minute he added that physical element to his game, he already now combines what Chernak brings in addition to the elite offensive skills in my opinion, he may not get top four minutes on the back end once the playoffs begin, but I can make a very strong case mm -hmm. that Mikhail Sergachev is the second most valuable defenseman to this team right now. Well, they always say it takes two to 300 games for a defenseman to truly find their game in the NHL. Mm -hmm. And this year he's hit 200, I believe, if I recall correctly. This season, he finally figured out how to use his body. And not just physical fighting and, and even checking, but he stopped using the stick to try to play defense and started positioning himself better. Yep. Between, you know, the forward coming down the wing or wherever it is, he, start, he, start, he finally figured out how to use body positioning, how to use his size to lean on guys a little bit more. Um, and that's when his game all of a sudden elevated. And you could see it right away early this season. And then he started adding the fighting stuff later in the season. It, I, right. what the, the, I remember the, the fight on New Year's Eve in, in Buffalo, um, among others. But, and then the Shea Weber one was mm -hmm. you know, the one everybody talked about. Right, absolutely. Uh, you know, but learning how to, you know, Andre Schuster was a defenseman here in Tampa Bay that was kind of had similar body type, taller, bigger guy, but... He always used his stick for everything. He was never very physical. You know, you always wanted him to use that size to his advantage. You just never felt like he figured that out. Sergachev this year did. He did, and I think he's become maybe their second-best defenseman. And I know that's saying a lot with, with Ryan McDonough and everything he's accomplished I probably can make a case that McDonough hasn't been as good this year as he was last year. Uh, through maybe no fault of his own, I think he played exceptionally well last year. Sometimes I think you have years where you play a bit better. The good news for McDonough 
is this time off. I think he can heal some. Yeah, we know he's been hurt bumps. down the stretch, and, and yeah, and that could have affected some things. Yeah, yeah, and he's really played a lot of hockey the last six, seven years. Even mm-hmm. you know during his time with the Rangers when they were going to Eastern Conference Finals and Stanley yep. Cup Finals, and then you know going with the Lightning. So this this time off actually may benefit a guy like McDonough, and he may get back to where he was last year. But at least before this pause, uh, I'm going to make the very strong argument that Mikhail Sergachev is their second most valuable defenseman. And I'm curious what our audience thinks at Bolts Radio, at Greg Linelli. We may ask Dan Rosen that question when we return. Senior writer for NHL.com. We'll get his thoughts on this Lightning team. And, you know, what do we expect moving forward here with the NHL? Are they going to start in August or is it going to be delayed a little bit more? We'll talk about that with Dan when we return. It is the Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play. This is Power Lunch, exclusively on Lightning Power Play on the iHeartRadio app. All right, so glad you're with us on a Monday. Hope your weekend went well. Beginning of Phase 2 is today when it comes to the NHL, and hopefully games happen sooner rather than later, and all continues to go well. And here to talk about it a little bit more, our good friend, Senior writer for NHL.com. We've had him on the show a number of times. Always enjoy his analysis. That would be Dan Rosen. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today here in Tampa. And uh, are the juices starting to flow a little bit more today with uh, Phase 2 kind of uh, getting underway? Yeah, they, they really are, Greg, and thanks for having me. I mean, it, it is a good feeling, you know, to, to get into a, the next phase. I mean, we, we live in phases now, and then... At least in the NHL world, phase one is now over. Phase two is starting today. Uh, teams can begin to open their practice facilities for small group workouts. Not, not, not every team is doing that today. And not every player is coming back because it's a voluntary. Uh, phase two is voluntary right now. Um, but it's a step in a positive direction that we're able to do it. They were able to announce it. Uh, last week that it was happening and, and here we are so teams you know can get welcome their players back and and scheduled workouts with testing done and everything but you know it is a step in the right direction so it does lead to a little bit more optimism dan what do you think is still the biggest roadblock is it just obviously a another breakout with the virus or is it still logistically trying to make sure everybody every team is accommodated appropriately well, I think it's both. Um, number one, you're always fearful of another breakout with the coronavirus, but uh, y- you can, you know, we can, you can try to get some semblance of control over the whole situation. You know, once you manage the hub city and you set all that up, and that takes time. Like they, they haven't even chosen the final two destinations yet for this uh, because they know they need to get the players back, and then they need to get them in this small group workout to make sure everything is okay. Right. And then once you get to that, you graduate to phase three and then you have to have a two or three week training camp. So time is on the NHL side in terms of deciding these things. And in terms of following, you know, where hot spots might lines. So I think it's kind of all of the above. It's sort of all encompassing, Greg. It's, it's making sure that these players can get back and everything can be safe for them. It's making sure you have the right setup. Uh, to accommodate all the players in, you know, in each city that they're going to be in, each of the two cities that they're eventually going to be in. And then the other part, the third part of all this, is to make it entertaining for the fans. There's going to be any fans in the building, not going to be any fans in the building. So 
you have to devise a made-for-TV playoffs, basically. And that takes some planning stages. That takes some time. So when you consider everything that goes on with this, starting from just players walking in the building and getting their temperature taken, to what this is going to look like on television, hopefully come August, it's a huge undertaking. And it takes time to make it happen. I think, obviously, the league would want to have fans in the stands, particularly for the Stanley Cup Finals. So would the, the teams playing. I'm sure that would just add yes. <laughs> a bunch of great theater for everybody. Do you get the sense, Dan, that that's, there is a chance that can happen? Or do you still think that's far-fetched? I think it's a little far-fetched right now, only because of the situation we're in currently and how things are opening. And I know like, you know, you guys down in Tampa, you've been open for a while and things are happening down there, but I'm up in New Jersey and it's, you know, we're just slowly starting to see some trickle effects of things opening up. Uh, So it really, it's dependent on, you know, the city, the teams that are in it, the Stanley Cup final, number one. I mean, where are those locations going to be? And you have to be able to have some semblance of control and, and, you know, are we talking in a couple of months that we're going to be able to have fans packing, 20,000 fans packing into a building when right now in some areas you can't have more than 25 people packing into an area? Seems a little far-fetched to me. I hope so. I hope you're right because you're 100%, you know, getting those markets and getting it back up. And also just the idea of having it, I think, is, you know, brings the sense of normalcy back to a lot of people. But I think at this point it's a little far-fetched. You get the sense, again, that we're projecting here. Do you get the sense that the league may be leaning towards Vegas and then a Canadian team or a Canadian city for these hub cities? Or, again, uh, obviously it's still up in the air, but do you get the sense? I mean, just reading the tea leaves, yeah. it feels like that's that's what's happening here. I think they would. I think ideally they would like a Western Conference city and an Eastern Conference city uh, because of broadcast times. You know, I mean, yeah. television broadcast times. You could play... You know, you can play a noon game in the West, but, you know, it, it's it's a 9 o'clock game in the East. You know, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, in television times, especially if you have two Western Conference cities that you're doing and you want to play, like, say, noon, four, and eight, three games in a day, that noon game is 9 o'clock on the East Coast. And uh, I'm sorry, that, that, that noon game is Eastern time is 9 a.m. in the West Coast. That's hard, you know, it's, it's hard for broadcast. And you're not going to play a te- you know a local start time seven p.m. local start time game on the West Coast between two Eastern Conference teams because that's a ten p.m. start time. It doesn't bode well for television. So I think ideally they want an East team and a West. I think Vegas makes a ton of sense. So speculation, sure, Vegas makes a lot of sense. They've got all the hotels. It's readily available. It's got a number of ice rinks in the area. You can have some control over it. You got T-Mobile Arena right there. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Columbus makes a lot of sense. A lot of hotels around the area. You know, uh, Arena's got a practice rink attached to it. So, you know, those types of cities make a lot of sense. If you can get a Canadian city, sure. Absolutely. Uh, I think, you, you know, that would be even better because now you got a Canadian city and an American city in a sport that, you know, obviously goes across the border. But you have the quarantine issues with Canada and all that. So that they're working through all that right now. But Vegas, to me, makes a lot of sense, but so does L.A., and L.A. doesn't – the thing with L.A. is you don't have the Kings in it, so there's no built-in advantage for any for any team at all, and they're going to try to take away any advantage anyway. Those players would not be staying at home. They would be staying in their – you know, in the hotel, but still, 
there's a comfort level of playing in your home building no matter what. And if it's L.A., you're not worrying about the Kings at all. So Staples Center makes sense. you got L.A. Live around there. You can pretty much throw a whole bubble around half of L.A. Live and say, NHL, it's yours. Dan, what assurance would the players have to have from the league to allow fans in the stands? I mean, are we talking there has to be a vaccine? Or are we talking about, listen, we're going to take the precautions before the game, two hours beforehand. We're going to take temperatures. We're going to make sure people come in. Everything's okay. Because we, we understand the players, some of them probably are still a little spooked, especially ones that maybe have kids that, you know, they don't want to be uh, running around and, and playing in an environment where they still could get it. I think we all face that, obviously. But I'm wondering, what what do you think the league has to do to assure the player safety if they allow fans in the stands? Well, I think it has to be government regulated. I think you have to rely on local city, state, federal, you know, government um, to really make determinations on that and the medical community to make determinations on that. If the government officials say it's okay, if the medical experts say it's okay, then I think the players are going to probably be okay. You know, all right, we'll, we'll handle this. Uh, but I wouldn't even worry. I don't even think so much it's necessarily the players being concerned about fans in the stands. I, I think it's the fans being concerned about fans in the stands. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, how many people at this stage right now are going to rush back into an arena to sit six inches away from somebody on your left, somebody on your right, somebody in front of you, somebody behind you? You know, like these are not you're not exactly sitting in lounge chairs, you know, with uh, social distancing involved here. If you're going to do that, you can open the arena and spread it out that's possible you could do something along those lines that's you know interesting i have even read something like what if you can just open the suite level maybe you have your suite level open and you have fans in there right um so anyway i i don't know but i don't think it's necessarily the players need the insurance about fans in the stand i think the players need the assurance from the league within their writing and their agreement that everything's going to be done properly what they're what are they going to what are their lives going to be like? If some players could be eliminated in three days, some are going to go, you know, for two months, right? Two, three months. Um, what are those lives going to look like? Are families going to be allowed involved? Are they going to, like, are they just going to be sequestered? Basically, like, you can go to the rink and you can go to your hotel and that's yeah. it, um, which I think is the way it could be. But, how, you know, you're taking them away from their families and all this stuff. So there's a lot to figure out there. I think in terms of the insurances, assurances just from a fan perspective, it'd be more for the safety of the fans. Dan Rosen joining us here on Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play. You know, it's interesting, Dan. I actually think these sports workplaces are going to be some of the safest places out there because of the testing <laughs> and the hygiene that's going to be um, taken to make sure everybody's good. And as we know, in NHL locker rooms, it's a dirty place, but the guys that are dealing with the equipment and the staff do a great job of making sure everything is clean. And, you know, it's not like they've never dealt with the flu that's gone around in a locker room. They take the precautions necessary. Do you feel like the sports workplaces for the most part should be a pretty safe place and that specifically NHL locker rooms, those guys certainly know how to deal when a flu or virus is spreading in the locker room. Yeah, I think so. I think absolutely. And it's going to be for several different reasons, several layers to that. They're going to be limiting the number of people on the event level, which the ice level, right? So you're going to have the players, obviously, and the coaches, but limited amount of staff on those levels. You're not going to have anybody else in the building. There's going to be no media in the building, no media, you know, jumping in, going into the locker room, and you have 100 media members and 23 players in the locker room. I mean, that's not going to be happening. 
Um, each of the buildings that they're looking at have multiple locker rooms. So if you have, you know, 12 teams there, you might have a locker room for each of those 12 teams. If not, you know, you use, you have six, right? And so two teams will share, but it'll get cleaned out and, and sanitized once that one team leaves. Um, so you're going to have a very controlled environment, and that's what they're looking to create with these hub cities, a very, very controlled environment, which require, you know, and, and lots of sanitizing and lots of cleaning. And you, you're right. I mean, hockey itself, the sweaty gear, the stinky gear and all that stuff. But you're going to have uh, a focal point will be on controlling that environment. So I think you're right. I think it's going to be a very clean environment. It should be. I mean, that's that would be the layout of the plan. Dan, how committed is the league to finishing this season at all costs? In other words, if we do well. see an outbreak with a particular <laughs> team that has maybe more than one or two players that have the virus, my opinion is within reason. I mean, I think if you decide to come back, you got to finish it. I think it, it would just be you know tough to just shut it all down again. I mean, certainly that is an option. But what do you make of that scenario? Obviously, again, it's a hypothetical. We don't know what they're going to do, but I'm asking you just kind of reading the tea leaves again. What's your sense from the league in a situation like that? Well, I can only go off of what Bill Daly and Gary Bettman have said, and they are very intent on finishing this season. It makes uh, a, it's a a very big deal to finish this season and then play a full season next year. Um, Business-wise, it's a huge deal. Social-wise, it's a huge deal. Um, it's, it's very important. Um, Bill Daly said, uh, a single positive test will not stop this from happening. If it's an outbreak, they may have to deal with a different, you know, you, ha- you might have a different scenario in which case, yeah. you know, it wouldn't be safe or prudent to continue. Uh, but they are very intent on finishing this season. It's, it's a hundred percent the goal to do that. And that is why they are going through everything that they're going through to set as many possible precautions as possible uh, as they can to ensure the safety and the cleanliness uh, of everybody involved. And that's this whole goal. Uh, It wouldn't be good if they started and had to stop. But if they started and had to stop, it was because of an outbreak. And what are you going to do? I mean, that just happens, you know? Yeah, for sure. Dan Rosen joining us here on Power Lunch on lightning power play i think if you took a poll maybe amongst fans uh regarding gary bettman's approval rating might be the highest we've ever seen it dan i actually think (laughs) out of all the commissioners he's done a very good job communicating to the league the fans the players about what they want to do it's been pretty methodical but i think so far so good i think so far so good too uh they were the first the nhl is the first league to announce a return to play plan um, so they got their ducks in a row. The NBA has since followed suit. We see what's happening with Major League Baseball, that they're having issues, obviously, in terms of uh, trying to get their season get up and running and, and how it would work. Um, the communication has been open uh, very much so. Uh, it's been clear, concise, laid out, public for knowledge. Um, not and, and I think also one of the big things, and I, I would hope fans appreciate is the fact that the NHL is very? Is, they said it could be upwards. I think it was like twenty-five to thirty thousand tests that they would need um, for this. Right. So testing is obviously a huge thing. It's at the cost yeah. of tens of millions of dollars. But they to to do the whole testing plus the whole return to play. But they are they won't do it 
if those tests are not available, if, if the general public doesn't have access to testing as well. And I think testing has gotten so rampant and so big now that it, you know, Gary Bettman has been, said he has been assured that that won't be an issue, but that was an issue. They didn't want to be seen as the professional athletes taking tests away from the general public. And I think that's very important. You know, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a smart thing and it's a very important thing. And so far they, you know, by, by moving on to phase two, to me, it says that they are not doing that. You know, they're not taking away tests from the general public just for their own good. So I, I, I think it's been very good. Uh, I'm very curious to see how the whole thing continues. But, you know, from the NHL's perspective, every, you know, so far it seems like every T has been crossed and every I has been dotted the right way. Are goalies going to have a harder time coming back than the players? Specifically, if there's nobody in the stands in that backdrop with somebody shooting yeah. a puck, trying to pick it up, how difficult is that going to be? Well, they you know, don't forget, they handle it in practice every day, especially teams that sometimes practice in their home arenas at times, or at least morning skates, right? So they do, they do know what it's like to face shots without fans in the stands as a backdrop. Um, and goalies handle the outdoor games well with its, you know, the vantage point is totally unique to yeah. them. It's totally different. Um, so they adjust their line of sight, their eyesight. They adjust it very well. We had... Brian Boucher from NBC, former NHL goalie, uh, on our podcast, the NHL at the Rink podcast, a couple weeks ago. And he said he thinks the goalies will be behind the shooters. So, meaning the shooters are going to be ahead of them uh, mm-hmm. because the goalies are going to have to get used to putting the gear on again. It's heavy and the movements and, you know, reading spots and all that. Whereas a shooter can just land it up and go, you know, and it's going to be. A little different for the goalies, but I think a two or three week training camp is going to take that and make it even. Uh, the goalies are going to have time to get their, you know, their eyesight back. They're going to have time to get their ankles back and adjust their game and all that. Right. All that's going to be available to them in that two to three week training camp period. So I think once it comes back, you may see some outlier games that are high scoring games, but but I don't think you, it's going to be any different than what we would normally see. I was going to say, are we going to see, not only because the players have been away from the ice for an extended period of time, but also you're going to see as much talent going into these playoffs as we've ever seen. Are we going to see high-scoring games, do you think, throughout these playoffs? It's possible, like I said. I mean, you might see those types of games because teams, but teams are healthy. But let's see what it is when training camp is over, right? Um, they're all going in to training camp pretty much healthy unless a guy had major surgery and he was going to be out until you know october november of next season right so uh like i think of brett pesci from the carolina hurricanes had major shoulder surgery he he may not be due back until october in which case he would still miss the whole thing um but almost every team is coming back with 90 to 90 95 to 100 percent of their guys healthy who wouldn't have been earlier. Steven Stamkos wouldn't have played in the first round of the playoffs. He's fine now. He's ready to go, you know? So it's going to be very interesting. And I've heard players say we could have the best type of playoffs because of the competitive level of everybody being healthy. But let's not forget, these guys have not been skating for the most part, the majority of them. They've been working out, but now they're going to throw themselves back on the ice and into a training camp and into high-level competition. There's going to be muscle pulls. There's going to be groin injuries. There's going to be nicks and bumps and bruises and all that through training camp. So 
I I know they're going to go in healthy. I want to see who comes out healthy of training camp. You concerned at all about the ice that time of year as well? No, not really. Uh, the, the technology has gotten so good and the ice technicians have gotten so good that they can really control it. And let's not forget, a big part of the issue of the ice in the Stanley Cup playoffs, especially in the Stanley Cup final, and you probably remember it in Tampa, is opening the doors for fans to come in. Mm-hmm. Once you open those doors, you're letting in that humidity into the building. And then you have to find a way to get that humidity out of the building. And so the building's really cold throughout the day and all that. There's no reason to open the doors unless, you know, you're going to open one door, the security entrance, and that's where people are going to be coming and going. Otherwise, there's really no reason to open the doors. So it's going to be a very controlled environment for that too. So I think they're going to be able to, to have the ice will be perfect if you ask me. Two more questions for you, Dan. Uh, Dan Rosen from NHL.com. What do you make of the Lightning? I know we're kind of shifting now, focusing on these teams. We know Tampa Bay made some moves at the trade deadline. Blake Coleman, Barkley Goodrow, and you know what they did in the, the previous offseason, bringing in Pat Maroon and Kevin Shattenkirk. Coleman still was trying to find himself, I think, in that Lightning lineup, but you can make a case yep. having a baby now and getting acclimated to his surroundings a bit better. We may see a better Blake Coleman. What, what do you make of the Lightning team just in general, all things considered? Stamkos comes back. You, you've got to think they're as good as any team in the league again. I do. Yeah, I think they're as good as any team in the league. I think they're perfectly suited for this type of playoff, too, uh, where you're going to need a lot of high skill, but you're also going to need some of that grind. And I think, I think, you know, we saw what happened last year. Great regular season, but in a lot of ways, if it was a, it was fool's gold because of the way they, they, they just weren't built to withstand a grinding type of playoffs. And we saw it. It was obvious. Um, I think they are this year. I think they're better suited for the playoffs this year than they were last year because of the additions of guys like Pat Maroon and Blake Coleman and those types of players. So uh, I think that they are – look, I know Boston was the best team in the regular season. Um, I look at the Bruins and I say – there's a little bit of age on them. I'm very curious to see how they're going to come back. Uh, I think it'll be easier for some younger players at the start. Um, and, uh, you know, Tampa's got some real high-end younger players too. So I think they're the, they're my favorite, the Lightning, going into this whole thing. There's a hunger level. Uh, there's enthusiasm. Um, and, and I just look at them and I say they're built now to win it. It's different than another. You're not doing the travel, the road games, all that stuff. But I think they're built better now than they were last year to win the whole thing. Uh, Lastly, Dan, it's obviously been talked about in every sports league, not to um, bring it into politics at all, because that's not the point of it. But, you know, obviously we've seen a lot of players uh, come out, condemn racism. I think everybody involved in that uh, understands the, uh, the implications there. But I'm curious... What the league you think will do um, from a punishment perspective if they hear players use racial slurs on the ice? We know it does go on from time to time. Former players, current players have talked about it. Um, Obviously, everybody is focused on it right now um, because of what's going on. But do you get the sense that the league, from a penalty perspective, will be harsher in dealing with something like that? Well, I do. Um... I, I really do. And um, if you remember back in December at the Board of Governors meeting back in December, 
the NHL and Gary Bettman. And it was largely in response to Akeem Alou and the Bill Peters situation. Yeah. Um, basically announced, a, 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 I believe it was a four-point plan outlined of a zero-tolerance policy. And what does that mean? It means that the commissioner pretty much has the final say over it um, in terms of if anything were to happen. Uh, but it's zero tolerance. It will not be accepted. It will not be allowed. And what's the punishment? I, I couldn't even begin to tell you. But after what I have seen um, in the past two weeks, or are we mm-hmm. at two weeks at this point yet, uh, yeah. from the players and they're, they're speaking out, and I'm, I'm talking about the white players in the league, um, I, I would not expect uh, anything to happen. I, I hope nothing would happen. Um, and I think the NHL, we always, you know, these, these players are, are, you know, very intent on being a part of this social change that are going on. We've seen it. Uh, mm-hmm. And I've, you know, Nick Kotsanika, my colleague, did a story with Kim Davis of the NHL, who, um, very involved in this, and she said that she's had number of players reach out to her that haven't even gotten on social media because they're not maybe they're not on it or not comfortable. So it is a big, big part of changing the culture. You know, uh, you know, adjusting the culture of hockey as part yeah. of the bigger social movement going on. And I think this generation of player uh, really wants to make that positive change and is not afraid as we've seen to speak out in favor of that positive change. Whereas in previous generations of players, it's been more, way more conservative. This generation is taking ownership far more than any other generation. And it's a great thing. And it's, it's just part of the way they've grown up and it kind of goes along with the society of it, you know, Dan, outstanding stuff. Always good to talk hockey with you and we get a little closer to this we'll we'll check in and uh we can start talking about some training camps maybe some exhibition games and then here we go playoffs yeah let's get it going be a lot of fun thank you dan all right thanks greg all right dan rosen joining us there on uh, nhl.com from nhl.com always good to get dan's perspective on you know where things are headed and obviously still likes the lightning a great deal and we talked about this at the beginning of the show how deep this team is. I mean, we were having a debate. Who's the the second most valuable defenseman on this Lightning team? And we had at least four options that you could throw out there. And I think it speaks to how talented they are. I know you've heard that over and over again. I know you understand that at some point you want them to uh, knock down that door and win a Stanley Cup. And I think everybody would agree with you, uh, including the national media, that it is this, this core group's time to eventually break open that door, pound that door down, and win a cup. And I think a lot of people still feel very confident in their capabilities. Um, Steve, it was interesting talking to Dan there about, you know, does he think the ice will be an issue? Does he think goaltenders will be an issue coming back? And um, the ice, uh, Dan doesn't seem to be as worried because of the technology. But I do think if you have multiple teams playing uh, with the temperature being what it will be wherever – those host cities are it could get a little choppy yeah you and i have been in you know if you remember the stanley cup back in in 2015 here in tampa how cold the building would be when you got there yeah you know two three four in the afternoon because they and they would keep that bowl as as tightly closed as possible limiting how many people could come in etc 
to keep that the humidity out and keep the the room nice and cool so as fans came in the doors open it didn't get too humid and the ice was good playing three or four games a day presumably three uh, that could you know early in the day may be better than later in the day and, and depending on which city and what the temperatures are there and the humidity in those markets so I think the ice is a concern I, I, I mean without having fans in the stands that eliminates a big part of that issue of the humidity coming in but playing three games a day on that ice it'll be interesting how that works out uh, as far as goaltenders I mean I think you know, and it was Brian Engbaum last week, I think, was even talking, you know, hey, you know, these goalies in practice, mm-hmm. they, they, they're, they're blocking shots against a uh, fanless backdrop for the most part. Um, now, granted, it's not a game situation. There's not the pressure of it. Your shooters aren't shooting full speed either. I mean, it, you're hitting your goalie, so you're not trying to do that. So it's, it's slightly different, but they are used to seeing pucks against that fanless backdrop. So I, I don't know if that's as big of an issue as, as some may think. It's, uh, it's an interesting point, and it's one we'll certainly keep an eye, our eyes on uh, moving forward. Um, we have any uh, last-minute things to uh, promote here, Steve? I know we've got Game 5 tomorrow night on 95.3 WD mm-hmm. and Lightning Power Play back in 2018, the Lightning and the Caps, ironically. It'll be the last game the Lightning win. Uh, when it comes to a playoff game in the last two years, <laughs> considering what happened last year, but don't we'll miss have the, that don't miss you. the first period. That may have been the best first period of that series yeah. or f- period yeah. of the series for the Lightning. Uh, they hold on uh, mm-hmm. for that three-two win, but yes, early on, Tampa Bay was really good. Anything else we've got uh, going on well, tomorrow? Uh, Dave Michigan's going to have Rick Peckham on the show. Yes, um, they're going to they're going to talk about uh, the Lightning and obviously the NHL pause and the resumption, but also his career and. Uh, hopefully he has not called his last game. At this point, it doesn't seem like he has because uh, yep. it looks like the uh, hockey's going to resume and, and the local RSNs, uh, Fox Sports Sun, will be a part of it, although he won't be at the Hub Arena. It'll be back in a studio somewhere. But um, So Dave will talk to, to Rick Peckham tomorrow. So Wonderful. Make sure you stay tuned for that. That'll be noon to one. Thanks to everybody who listened today. We always appreciate it. Thanks to Steve Versnick as well. We will do it again with uh, this format on Wednesday. Don't forget, listen to Dave uh, Mishkin. He'll host Power Lunch tomorrow starting at noon. And uh, have a great day, everybody. Off to do some swim lessons with the kids. Back after this on the Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play.